Hello, good morning. As you heard, uh, my name's Roger. Uh, I am a psychologist. So I, I've, I, I've been kind of uh, following some of your series so far, God's Plan for Your Wellbeing. And um, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll know that you've been looking at the story of Elijah, that Old Testament prophet uh, who lived several hundred years before Jesus. And um, if you've been following that story, you'll know that it's told in 1 Kings chapter 18 is one of the most dramatic stories, I think, in the Bible. So Elijah prophetic dude anointed by God has reached the high point of his ministry. The power of God has fallen in fire from heaven. He's eliminated his rivals. He solved a national crisis by bringing a three-year drought to an end with rainfall. It's amazing. I can remember when, when I was a kid first hearing this story in church and thinking, this is the most incredible story in the Bible. It's totally amazing. Loved it. But then in 1 Kings chapter 19... The next chapter, he's in a completely different place. Have you ever noticed how um, very often big closings follow big openings? That quite often highs are followed by lows, breakthroughs followed by breakdowns, and that's where Elijah is. All the dials on the dashboard of his well-being are in the red, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, vocationally, financially, He's done. He's finished. Burnt out. And you could say, in a sense, that Elijah has no choice but simply to collapse in the presence of God. Circumstances had maneuvered him into a position where he could only be broken before God. Don't know if you've ever been there. I have at times. It's just one of those moments where I just give up and I'm like, God, everything's just gone on top of me. Don't know what to do. Don't know where to go. There's things in myself I'd like to change, which I can't change. Um, there's situations that have landed on me, stresses at work, different factors coming along, and I just don't know what to do. I'm just stuck. Artie Kendall, the Bible teacher, once said, when God is in something, he reduces our options to one. Sometimes, like Elijah, this is where God meets us and shapes us. And it wouldn't surprise me if right now some of you are there. Maybe it was work, maybe it was family, maybe it was relationships, whatever it was, but you're feeling burnt out, you feel emotionally broken. And quite often when we're in those moments, it's really hard to fake it or conceal it. It just is. And very often the only thing we can do is simply seek the support we need and then rest in God's power and his love, and allow him to meet us in the pain. But I think most of the time, most of us aren't there. We, we have some kind of choice about what we do with our emotional well-being. We're not at the breaking point yet, but we are aware that there are difficult, niggling emotions that are sort of waving at us a little bit, saying there could be a bit of a problem here. We start to notice that we're stressed, or we're irritated, or we're angry, or we're sad, feeling empty. And it's these things that are wave for our attention. So today, I'd like to talk firstly about how it is that God would have us relate to our emotional lives. How should we do that? What's the best relationship to form to those aspects of life? And then practically, what could we do to move our emotional lives more in the direction of emotional well-being? What are those kind of practical tips, hints, ideas we could work on? So I'm going to talk about a selection of practices, four of them, that bring us peace. Hundreds of years after Elijah, 
Jesus comes along, and there's a lovely story in Mark's gospel, one of the biographies of Jesus, chapter 10, that, that, that gives us a kind of feel about how Jesus would like us to relate to ourselves. So people start bringing their kids to Jesus. They want their kids to meet Jesus. He's lovely, he's fantastic, he's gentle, he's humble, he's passionate and inspiring, and they want their kids to be in his presence and meet him. And all the disciples sort of get between Jesus and the parents, and they try and stop these kids. They're like, he's this great man. He doesn't have time for this kind of thing. Children are messy. They're irrelevant. They're insignificant. They're inconvenient. Anyone with small children says amen at that point. <laughs> Certainly in our, in our house, when our kids were little, uh, we could barely finish a sentence, or sometimes not even a thought. It was like, <laughs> I see that what's going on here. It's difficult to talk. So the disciples are like, no, keep them away. This is just going to be inconvenient. It's just going to be a mess. And Jesus tells them off. He says, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. And truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of heaven like a child shall not enter them, enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Jesus takes the children in his arms and he blesses them, and he lays his hands on them. Primarily, it's a story about children and about how any culture, any community, any society that's worth its salt will treasure, will protect, will look after its kids. It will value them. But interestingly, it's also a story about adults. It's the kind of relationship Jesus would like to form with the parts of us that seem childish, or insignificant, or irrelevant, inconvenient. Those areas of our lives that sometimes seem deeply at odds with who we would like to be, that seem to almost contradict our desire to follow Jesus and to be more like him. Very often we find that where those areas that we would like to ignore, Jesus would like to bring his grace to. What we view as our misery, often Jesus is saying, it could actually be that this is your mission. Because if we're really honest, our emotions aren't always convenient. Have you, have you ever noticed how your emotions often seem to show up and get in the way of the very best parts of yourself? Sometimes you find, you know, I'm being caring, and the moment we reach out in care, we start feeling deeply resentful. Or we're forging ahead with our ambition, and yet inside the thing that should bring us life just makes us feel numb. Or I'm defending the truth. I'm talking about my opinion and it really matters and it's really, really important. I'm fighting for it. And yet suddenly we find that rage and murderous desire comes up in us as we talk about it. All these kinds of areas that are so difficult, that are so inconvenient. And sometimes it's even tempting to think that our emotions are what we need to get over to be good Christians. Or alternatively, sometimes we might even find that our emotions so completely overwhelm us that it's, we don't have our emotions anymore. They have us. They just sort of guide us around and it feels like this is not the kind of poise, the kind of self-possession I should be living with. So I have to say, I, I'm really delighted today that as part of this series, you're giving an entire Sunday morning to emotional well-being. Because to me, it speaks of integrity. It speaks of truthfulness about who we are and a desire for wholeness in walking with God, that we don't just love God with our minds or just with our actions. We love him with mind, soul, strength, every part of ourselves. 
And the thing about emotions is, there, are, there aren't actually really any inherently negative or positive emotions. We, we do call them that, but it's not actually quite true. What we usually call negative emotions, we call them that because they have very, very strong action tendencies. It seems like you need to do something with them. So fear wants to run, anger wants to fight, envy wants to strip other people of their strength and bring them down, shame wants to hide and curl up, sadness wants to withdraw. And so we call them negative emotions because they come with those really, really strong things. And that's why sometimes in some workplaces you'll find that occasionally managers or whole organizations try to manage people through negative emotions of fear and anger and stress and competition because you get very, very reliable behaviors out of people. You don't get a great sense of trust or community or love. You don't get a great sense of well-being, but you do at least get people to do what you want them to do. Positive emotions, on the other hand, don't have those things attached to them. So if you're having a moment of serenity or joy or gratitude, if you're having a moment of, of laughter and humor, um, a moment of appreciation, it doesn't necessarily do, you, know, you don't necessarily feel like you need to do something. If you feel serene, then really two things happen. Firstly, your awareness opens. When you're serene, you start to learn things. Ever had a moment of peace with God? where you start to spot new things in yourself, new things in the world. Ever gone on a walk where you've actually just quieted your mind for a while and you've started to notice things in the world that you otherwise wouldn't have spotted because they're wondrous in lots of different ways. So our positive emotions, they broaden our perspective. And then the other thing is, as time goes on, as you allow those positive emotions to be part of your life, they build your resilience. So on the days when the waves come, on the days when the challenges and the stresses come your way, if you've been able to sit in some of those wonderful positive emotions, those waves don't topple you quite in the same way. And the difficulty we have in our culture is that the negative emotions, if you like, are designed for short-term gain. So they're designed to do things for you immediately. That's what they're there for. So if you're crossing the road and a truck is coming your way uh, and it's about to hit you, you don't want to be having a moment of wonder gazing into the beautiful eyes of the truck driver. That's not that moment. Fear comes along and fear wants to get you out of the way immediately. Short-term, quick gain. Um, Some people would say in the past it means that when, when we used to kind of have to fight off predators and things like that, anger and aggression was there to make sure we kept ourselves safe. Quickly, immediate threat came in, saber-toothed tiger, beat it down, we can move on. It's fine. The problem in our culture very often is that we don't face those kind of immediate problems in quite the same way. Most of our problems are long-term. So some of our problems in work, uh, with children, with money last a long time. Those of you who perhaps are managers or leaders in certain place, those of you who are raising children, you know that the story arc of what you're going through sometimes lasts months, sometimes even years. And so we're carrying stress and anxiety and sometimes aggression long-term, whereas those emotions were designed to help us short-term. So today, I, I want to talk about four practices that can help us with our emotional well-being. Um, interesting, they appear both in the Bible and in psychology, so I'm going to refer to both um, as we go along. Um, four ways which you as a community can practice your faith uh, that will help you contribute to the emotional health of the world around you. And what I'd say is don't take this as a long list of stuff to do. Four more things you've already got. 39 things on your to-do list, I'm going to add four more. Don't view it like that. Actually, view it as a menu 
And if there's one of them that really kind of appeals to you, just pick it up and take it away. It might be something you, look, you read in your daily devotional that accompanies this series. It might be something you talk about in your small group. But pick something on the basis that it seems natural or enjoyable or valuable, not because you feel obligated to do it. Try and have a think about, is there something here that just seems to suit you? And maybe that, that sense of suitedness is the Holy Spirit just saying, that's the one for you this time. So I'm going to talk about four practices. And those practices are gratitude, hope, endurance, and kindness. Gratitude, hope, endurance, and kindness. Gratitude then. An emotionally healthy person appreciates what they have. An emotionally healthy person appreciates what they have. Now this goes against a large part of the way our culture thinks about itself. So our culture tends to get stuck on what some psychologists would call the hedonic treadmill. What that means is this. It means that there's certain things we think we need to do or need to get that will make us happy. A promotion, uh, a car, those new shoes, a bigger house. And we think about those things and we pursue them. But then when we get them, if we're lucky enough to get them, we achieve them, we suddenly discover that actually, A, they don't make us as happy as we thought they would make us, and B, the happiness of them doesn't last as long as we thought it would. In other words, it doesn't quite work. So we think, all right, now I need the next thing. Let's go for that. And then off we go chasing after that next thing. It's kind of the logic of advertising. Gerald Coates once said that advertising strips us of our dignity and sells it back to us at the price of a product. Kind of says, you're no, no good unless you buy this cereal. That's the logic of it. But the interesting thing is that when you start to look at gratitude, gratitude kind of does the opposite of that. When we're thankful for something, we take something we already have and we receive it again as a gift, as if for the first time. Um, about five years ago, uh, me and my family uh, moved house and we moved out of a really, really rough and ready neighborhood, uh, which was, you know, uh, people fighting in the streets, uh, loud rave music through the night, um, uh, people urinating on our doorstep. It was lovely. <laughs> we were really pleased to be there. And in a long story that, that was really a story of Exodus in which we prayed for God to get us out of there, uh, we ended up moving into a completely new neighborhood. And now we live somewhere where it's kind of the complete opposite, where now we get judged if we don't mow our lawn. You know the kind of neighborhood that's... If I don't, if I don't keep my car clean, you know, I'm, I'm bad. Um, and the thing is, when I first moved in, I can remember the first night of just lying in bed and listening to the silence, which was so much better than the rave music I used to go to sleep to in my other house, and just thanking God for the peace. But you know, when, when you make a move like that, sometimes what happens is a couple of years down the line, you know, you're amazed with this new place and the place you are and how pleasant it is and how nice it is. And then a few years down the line, you start thinking, oh, the garden isn't big enough. Should we do an extension here? Is this many bedrooms really enough? Do, do we need another one? And this is the hedonic treadmill at work. It's beginning to say, is this enough? Do you need more? But one of the things I found that's really, really helpful is even last night when I'm lying in bed listening to the silence of our neighborhood, again, I'm just thankful to God. I'm saying, thank you so much, God, for being here. And at that moment, it kind of kills that need to have more and more and more and more. Sometimes you'll find um, that the hedonic treadmill works like this. You've really, really pursued something. 
Maybe it's uh, something work-related. Maybe it's an ambition for yourself or for your family. And then one day after lots of work, you get it. And weirdly, you have this moment of just not feeling happy about it. Is this it? Um, Ravi Zacharias, the, the preacher, says that the emptiest moment in life is when we achieve that which we thought would deliver the ultimate and find it wanting. Gratitude counteracts those things. And that's why it's absolutely central psychologically and it's central biblically as well. So if you look in the Bible, one of the things you find is you find Jesus, when he feeds the 5,000, he doesn't pray for more bread. He thanks God for the bread that he has. When he breaks open the bread at the Last Supper again, he thanks God for his body. And in doing so, he's saying, in the breaking of my body, I'm going to reach everybody. There's enough for everybody. And then when you read uh, the Apostle Paul, so keep in mind that, that the Apostle Paul is, uh, uh, writes letters uh, in the generation after Jesus, and he's writing to young churches and trying to encourage them and help them get on with things. Um, and sometimes there's a bit of a sort of almost a stereotype of Paul that kind of says, you know, Jesus was like this kind of young, hip, liberal guy who went off to university and came back with some really nice ideas about peace and love. And Paul is this kind of homophobic, mean-spirited kind of guy. But if you actually read Paul's letters, 53 times in his letters, he's thankful. He's thankful to God for what God's done. He's thankful for other people, for how they've blessed him. He's thankful even for what's been gifted to him. Thanks, 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 all the way through his letters. And what's even more interesting than that is if you look in the New Testament, that, that sort of second half of the Bible, and you compare his letters to all the other letters, Hebrews, Jude, John, Peter, James, etc., they have zero occurrences of thanks. Paul, 53 other epistles, zero. It's kind of rugby score you can be proud of, really, isn't it? And you only really understand Paul when you read him through that. And in a sense, one of the things that's motivating Paul is the idea that what I am thankful for now is what's going to be part of my future. This church, these people, this giftedness, this thing that God's done for me, if I'm thankful for that now, I hold it for the future in some way. So the study of gratitude has undoubtedly been one of the success stories of the area of psychology I work in, sometimes called positive psychology, sometimes called character strengths. But it's basically been shown to do all kinds of great things. For example, did you know that listing three good things a day as you go to bed at night is likely to improve not only your emotional well-being but your physical well-being? It's likely to improve your immune system. It's likely to make your relationships with other people slightly better. That's gratitude. Um, another, another study says, pick somebody who has helped you at some point in the past, maybe a teacher, maybe a church leader, uh, maybe a mentor figure um, who really meant a lot to you, and pay them a gratitude visit. You know, write them a letter and go and read it to them about how grateful you are and how you appreciate it. Weirdly, in that study, they found that people who did that reported increases in well-being up to three months later, just as a result of sitting down and deeply and meaningfully thanking people. And the funny thing about gratitude is that gratitude isn't just for the good days. It can all sound a bit sort of pink fluffy unicorns dancing on rainbows, can't it, as we talk about it. But actually, gratitude can help us on the bad days as well. Sadly, four years ago, uh, my brother-in-law, Niall, uh, in his early 30s, died of cancer. Um, he was diagnosed, and within six months, he had died. 
And um, he, my wife's uh, from Ireland. He was in hospital in Ireland, so she left England and went to Ireland and stayed in the hospital with him for two weeks. And because I'm part of a church community, like many of you, I've actually walked with many people through cancer, actually, in all kinds of different ways. Some people have been healed, some people have died, some people have kind of chugged along in and out of remission, all kinds of different ways it can work out. But we've been at the end with people before. And so um, about a week before he died, not knowing when that time would come, my wife sat down with her brother and she said, "Um, listen, we know that probably towards the end of your life, uh, you won't be able to communicate with us. You'll, you'll be, you know, drugged up, you'll be unconscious, and we won't be able to know if you can hear us or not. But you will probably be able to hear us even though you can't communicate. What would you like us to say to you at that moment? And Niall just said, you know, I, I'd like you just to say good things about me. So my wife got, got a big kind of A4 sheet of paper, and uh, she went around all her relatives, Irish family, they're all in the hospital there, so it's like 30 of them, And um, she gets from a whole list of things that Niall has blessed you with. What does he mean to you? What's it about? And then sure enough, um, a week later, Niall starts to slip into that sort of semi-coma that that sometimes comes at the end of cancer treatment. And Marie-Claire knows this is the moment, so she takes a piece of paper and she starts to read to him all the things that people have written down. His strange obsession with tractors. His risky surfing. His, his weird tendency to film renovation projects and put them on YouTube. And she reads through all these kind of things, humorously, lovingly thought of about him. And then at the end, she gets to her, her own one, and she says, and Niall, here's what I want to thank you for. This is what you've taught me, that nothing is so old, damaged, or broken that it cannot be mended, re- renewed, or reused. And literally, the moment those words came out of her mouth, he took a deep breath, and that was his last breath. She ran down the corridor to find his wife so she could be there too, Um, and then they just prayed over him as he passed away. Gratitude. Gratitude isn't just for those pain, for those great moments in life. It can also help us in the pain too. This year, I I suddenly and unexpectedly lost my dad, so he died of a heart attack um, earlier this year. And I have to say that while he was alive, I was more aware of how different I was to him than how similar we were. And then weirdly, when he died, I'm now more aware of how similar I am to him. And one of the best ways of holding on to that is being grateful for what it is that I've inherited from him that I somehow didn't quite see in the same way while he was alive. So that's gratitude. Second practice, hope. An emotionally healthy person believes in a better future. An emotionally healthy person believes in a better future. The message of hope is you can get there from here. You might not feel it, but you can. Uh, Hopeful people don't just believe in a better future. They also believe that they, they will make a contribution to bring that future about. They also believe there's lots of different ways to that future. So if the one you're following today fails, there might be another way. And they also believe that every single one of the ways into our better future that we're contributing to will be difficult. It will have hiccups, problems, frustrations. That's the way life works. And in, in, the, Old Test- in, in the New Testament, sorry, the message from Paul, again, the apostle, is basically this, that the hope for the world is actually Christ living in the people of God. Because if Christ lives in you and you're beginning to see your life changed and your life altered, what you begin to realize is if he can do this for me, then he can do it for other people too. It becomes our sign of hope. 
When we look at Brexit and we look at all the political stuff that's going on in the world at the moment, never before have we more needed hope and never before have we more needed to believe that people can be changed, people can be transformed, that peace and love and grace and wisdom can predominate. That's God's plan. That's where we're heading. That's the hope. So when it comes to hope in everyday life, hope effectively really means that you never know what's around the corner. Maybe right now you're in difficulty. Maybe right now things are pretty hard for you, but you never know what's going to happen next. Um, I, I, as a teenager, for quite a few years, sort of struggled with suicidal thoughts. Um, And uh, when I started training as a psychologist, it was almost doing a bit of DIY. I say to my students, no one becomes a psychologist because they're normal. You do know that, don't you? Um, I wasn't doing research. I was doing me-search. And um, I started treating myself with all these different ways of thinking and trying to lift myself up. And it was pretty effective, worked pretty well. And then one, one night in my 20s, I'm sat in the garden and I'm just sort of reading my Bible. And suddenly that familiar black bubble just lands on me. And all that kind of deep, painful thinking and stuff about suicide. And I just cry out to God and say, God, when is this going to go away? When will you take this away? I go to church that night and somebody's preaching and they get to the end of a talk and I can't really remember what, what was in the talk. Um, but they get to the end of the talk and they give one of those kind of all-encompassing kind of response. You know, when, when a preacher just wants everybody to come forward, they say, if you're still breathing tonight, uh, please, please come forward. The Lord wants to meet you. And I was quite resistant. I was like, I don't want to do that. Um, I, I only go forward for preachers that are either specific or really skillful. I'm not, not going forward for a general thing like that. But I felt the Holy Spirit really challenge me and say, no, this one's for you. So I go forward. I'm in the fourth row. Halfway between the fourth row and the front of the church, I almost get struck by lightning. It's like the Holy Spirit just hits me in a powerful way. And I fall to the floor twitching. And... Um, at the time, I thought, I think I'm having an epileptic fit. That must be what this is. Um, and then I come round, and from, from that point onwards to now, that black bubble hasn't landed on me anymore. It just hasn't been there. <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? In a talk like this, I don't have to pretend to be perfect. It's good. Um, But that black bubble went away, and now I still have a choice. If I want to revisit that, I can if I really want to. If I want to put my mind there, I can. But I now have a choice about whether I'm going to go there or not. And generally, I choose not to. So that's hope. Hope is you never know what's going to happen next. You might be in the darkest place possible right now, and that then inflects how you see what's going to happen next, but you don't know. Things could be turned around very, very quickly. Third practice, endurance. An emotionally healthy person makes suffering okay. If there's, if there's a theme to most of my talking, preaching, therapy, all that kind of thing, it's to make suffering okay. Psychologists sometimes call it normalization. You come in, you're depressed. Firstly, let's normalize that. Loads of people have been where you are right now. Now let's work out what to do from there. And endurance, if you like, is the art of suffering usefully. It asks not, why am I suffering, but what am I gaining or learning from my current pain? You may not be responsible for where you've ended up. You may not be responsible for some of the difficulties you currently go through, but you are still left with the question of, okay, what are you going to do with it now that you're there? In psychological terms, it's called post-traumatic growth or adversarial growth. Uh, I wrote my doctorate on trauma uh, quite a few years ago now, 20 years ago. 
And I interviewed over 100 people who'd been through traumatic events and talked to them and tried to understand what was going on. And what I was particularly interested in, I was interested in what did they find out? What did they learn when the trauma had passed? So when the trauma had gone through and they'd got over some of their PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, what happened next? And what I often found was actually they grew in all kinds of interesting ways. They said they were wiser or they were more compassionate or their spiritual connection was deeper, or they were more courageous, or they had a deeper appreciation of vulnerability, or they were deeper as people in some way. And there's several passages in the Bible that speak directly to that kind of situation. For example, in the first chapter of James, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes, "'Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds.'" For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's basically the idea that we're not saved from our sufferings, very often we're saved in them. Very often that's where we're saved. And the lesson of endurance ultimately is probably something like this. If you live with the belief that nothing bad should ever happen to you, that belief in itself becomes painful when the bad things do come. You know, so if you think nothing bad should happen to you and then a bad thing happens, you've got two problems. You've got the bad thing that's happened and you've got the sense of outrage that you're carrying that ever should have happened to you. Endurance says, I didn't want this to happen. It's not a good thing. But nevertheless, while this is going on, I'm going to just hunker down and I'm going to stay with God and I'm going to persist and I'm going to see what I learn in the process. Kindness. An emotionally healthy person is never too cool to be kind. Kindness is love in action. Sometimes uh, we call it compassion. And in it, we decenter ourselves, we put ourselves out of the center, and we overcome self consciousness in order to engage with other people. Interestingly, one of the most important things we can do as people for our psychological health is actually to make our internal dialogue kinder towards ourselves. One of my favorite questions to ask people who are suffering and really punishing themselves internally is, yeah, what, what would a good, kind, supportive friend say to you instead of what you're currently saying to yourself? What would that be like? And the, and the interesting thing is when you look at psychological research, you actually find that being kind to oneself and kind to others is one of the most powerful things we can do in order to improve our psychological well-being. Over and over again, people who volunteer, people who care for others, people who do gardening for people, again and again and again, describe increases in well-being. And one piece of research said there's a significant boost in well-being that occurs if you choose to be kind in a specific way. So if you feel you need to be kind all the time, and you can't be anything else, never have any boundaries, never have any limits, that actually very often leads to kindness fatigue. Uh, we kind of get a bit tired of it. Sometimes we feel resentful. You probably know people who are kind in their behavior but resentful in the way that they express it. Whereas actually the most effective way to show kindness in an active way is probably to pick a day of the week and say that, this week, that's going to be my kindness day. And I'm going to choose the person and the exact way in which I'm going to be kind to that person. I'm going to plan for it. I'm going to execute it really well, probably do it anonymously so that they don't know it's me. Uh, and then after I've done it, I can just really, really enjoy the impact that that's had on the person. 
I, I uh, used to share an office at work until um, a couple of years ago, and I used to like to sneak little gifts onto Kirsty's desk, um, little bits of chocolate and things like that. Never admit it was me. Although no one else had a key to the office, so it's a bit obvious, but never mind, you know. But kindness is one of the best ways for us not only to build our internal world, but also to build the community around us as well. So those are just four, there's so much that could be said in a talk like that, but those are just four different kind of principles, practices you could pick up, whether it's gratitude, hope, endurance, kindness. The worst way to hear what I'm saying is to hear it as a to-do list. More things to do. The best way to view it might be through a lens of kindness and curiosity. Which of those that I've heard today might really work for me? Because the thing is, even though we often feel we don't have time to add new things to our life, life is always offering us mini breaks, mini Sabbaths, in which we can really connect with God in gratitude or love or whatever it happens to be. Except we usually call them queues at the supermarket or traffic jams or Windows 7. Things that we have to just sit around and wait for them to sort themselves out. In that waiting, we can be meeting with God. And a short talk can't cover everything, particularly if you're going right now through a period of trauma or distress. If there's only one thing you hear about emotional well-being today, just hear this, that Jesus is calling you into rest and peace. He's calling you to a journey, to a process of discipleship that will lead you to peace. Many of the great saints in church history who went on to transform the world actually attribute their calling to one specific Bible passage in the words of Jesus. When Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? 